Wednesday night, we're going to continue through the Bible, um, and we're going through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and, and as soon as we're done with Luke, we go to the Gospel of John. And after John, you know, we just kind of keep going right through the Bible. So that's how we roll here at Athey. So why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 21 for this morning's uh, text. Normally, I take a small text from our upcoming chapter on the Wednesday night, or two or three chapters, depending on where we are in the Bible. Um, but uh, today I want to cover Luke 21 as a whole chapter, and there's a method to my madness. Um, we have covered, there, this is, something would call this chapter, Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse. And if you recall, we have covered the Olivet Discourse, um, you know, both in Matthew and Mark, two different, you know, versions of it. Matthew gives us an extremely complete and thorough and huge, if you remember, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew was Matthew 24 and 25, two uh, full chapters of red letters. Um, Luke gives us this really pared down version, um, very, very brief. Um, and I would suggest, just for those of you that are students of scripture, um, maybe this, this may not be the same dissertation that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives. This might've been a shorter one given to specific Jews on the Temple Mount. And I'll show you uh, that as we get into this. So, um, but it, 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 I wanted to kind of, take a high level view of Luke 21, uh, this kind of version of the Olivet Discourse, which is about the end of the world and the end of time and stuff like that. Uh, also about AD 70, when the Romans crushed Jerusalem. And there's some confusion about that. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, so let's take a kind of a high level view. If you want a deep dive into all the things Luke 21 talks about, and uh, you know, we, we did eight teachings in the Matthew 24 and 25 Olivet Discourse. So we really did, went a little deeper on that one. So I think it's kind of nice to do a little bit of a higher level view on this one. So let's take a look, Luke 21. It starts actually with a separate little story. You might almost say it's a chapter of its own, verses one through four. Let's pick it up right there. Luke 21, verse one. And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury has cast in all the living that she had. Here we see uh, something interesting. You've heard sermons preached on this similar passage in the Gospel of Mark. Like in Mark uh, 12, 41, Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people gave. And you'll hear sermons about, it's not as much about what you give, it's more about how you give. And there is a truth to that. that you, know, um, you know, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7 talks about, you know, Jesus even says, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful in the Greek, hilarious, where we get our word hilarious. A uh, hilarious giver, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a get to, it's not a got to. Giving should not be, you know, twisting your arm, you know, uh, as some, you know, some ministries of old have tried to twist people's arm to give. We've never asked people for money. We do teach here at Athey Creek what the Bible teaches about the, the tithe and the offering. And we've done whole, uh, rarely, but when we're going through the Bible, we'll do a teaching on that. In fact, I did a teaching on that two years ago um, when we were in Malachi chapter three, a whole Sunday morning, we talked about tithing and giving. So if you're interested in that, um, uh, we kind of look at the biblical perspective on that. But it is true, the Lord does look at how they gave in Mark and Matthew's account. 
But here in Luke, it's kind of interesting because there's a little twist on it. It's, it's not as much the word how as it, the idea is um, he observes what they gave. Um, and it's interesting, like look in verse one, it says here, uh, you know, Jesus saw, verse one, verse two, and he saw, verse two. But then he, he talks about how she gave more than they gave. You say, well, it was two mites. How much is two mites worth? Well, um, I've got a picture here of two mites. Um, you can find these today in Israel, in the dirt. You can find these little widow's mites, uh, you know, and you can buy them from the little stores, uh, the little antique shops and stuff in Jerusalem. But they're just like the two smallest units of measure of money. And this poor widow woman, this is all she had. So what's interesting when it comes to giving, it's not the size of portion, but the proportion of giving. Um, Jesus said she gave more, and it was out of the uh, the proportion that he measured. <clears throat> and I think that's important. One thing is, as an old you know church attender and you know talking to people over the years about giving, and um, I've noticed if you're a really wealthy person. Um, be careful because I've noticed that wealthy people tend to measure just on, you know, the amount that they're giving and kind of focus on that. But Jesus does seem to observe the proportion. Uh, let me give you a little lesson on proportionality. Uh, for example, if you're fortunate enough to earn $100,000 a year uh, and you tithe once a month to the Lord, give to the Lord through the tithe and offering or, or whatever, you'll give around $833 a month. That's what you'll give. However, if you're Elon Musk, uh, you know, if you kind of average out how much he earns a year, it's about $16.9 billion a year. Um, if he were to tithe once a month on his $16.9 billion a year, he'd be giving $140 million once a month to in the tithe and offering. Uh, anybody know Elon? Invite him to Athey Creek. Just one Sunday. It's great. Uh, we could have our whole building project uh, and then some. No, I'm just kidding. I, I could care less about that part. But, um, but, but um, you know, it's funny. Elon Musk, everybody freaked out. Why? Because he gave Mr. Beast, for you YouTube fans, uh, he gave Mr. Beast a million dollars. Wow, they gave Mr. Beast. If you're that same person that makes $100,000 a year, um, you're lucky enough to get that. Um, if you give the proportion to Mr. Beast that Elon Musk gave, Musk gave a million dollars, you would give him not $5.91. That's the proportion. Uh, uh, so, like, so it's like Elon pulling out five bucks on here, knock yourself out, uh, in proportion to his thing. As it turns out, this story does indicate that the Lord looks at the proportion that you are giving. Um, uh, and so that's kind of an important thing. I just wanna say that as it turns out, Jesus is doing the math, it seems here in this story. So um, I love this story. So it's about giving, Jesus sees. And um, I love that he just sees what's going on. And he sees, you know, when I, when I give of my tithe, the Lord sees that uh, and how we give, but also as it turns out, uh, what, what he gives. There's a great story, by the way, um, in this very same location where this widow gave her might. It's in Second uh, Samuel 24, where David uh, wanted to give something to the Lord. It's kind of a long story. David did a sinful thing and numbered the people and a bunch of people died because of his sin. And so David repented. And he th thought, I'm gonna buy some land next to the city of David, which was the old Jebusite city of the Canaanites. Um, uh, he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy some property. And so he goes to this dude named Aruna. And Aruna, um, he says, I wanna buy some property and get, get a cow and sacrifice here unto the Lord, build an altar. And Aruna's like, yeah, no way, I'm not gonna charge you for that. Knock yourself out, David. I'll give you the property. I'll give you the cow and stuff like that. 
Well, David, um, I'll just show you what he says here in uh, 2 Samuel 24, 24. And the king said unto Aruna, nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offering and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Um, this is a beautiful expression of David acknowledging that I'm not gonna worship the Lord with that which costs me nothing. Um, so he, was, he, he wouldn't take just a free offering. And um, the reason I bring that out is um, you say, Brett, what does that have to do with the widow? And the, well, did you know, does anybody know where Aruna's threshing floor was, what it happened to be? Anybody? The Temple Mount. David bought the Temple Mount at that moment. Uh, by the way, people say, who does the Temple Mount belong to? This is the bill of sale right here. Second Samuel 24, 24. Uh, David bought it with his own money. Uh, the, that is the Temple Mount today. Mount Moriah is what he bought. Didn't uh, Aruna especially? The reason that's kind of fun to me is because the widow gave her might on this same location just a thousand years later after David bought the threshing floor. But again, David understands as a worshiper that God sees, and he's not just gonna give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And, and that's something as church people, if you're a Christian, uh, if you're not a Christian, I hope you don't give any of your money to the church or for, you know, for that matter. Uh, we just want you to be here and take it in. And, but if you're an old school uh, Christian and you wanna please the Lord and as, as you know, just a good servant of the Lord, David gives us a hint here, I'm not gonna do that which costs me nothing. The reason that's important is we become kind of a consumer-centric church uh, behavior. Uh, you know, that's kind of the standard in churches a lot of times. We come and what's in it for me? Um, how am I going to get you know this or you know? But uh, I like how the, the the true worshiper of, uh, of the Lord will understand there there is a certain thing that's part of worship, and that is that which costs me nothing. I'm not going to do that. So uh, how is the plague of sin dealt with uh, there in this story of David? Uh, the, the, the blood sacrifice of a bull, uh, which is a whole other picture. Great, great story in the Old Testament. Well, back to Luke 21. Uh, now here in verse four, this, you know, that's kind of the end of the story of the widow and her might and, and just that notion of giving. Uh, it's a great reminder. Some people say there should have been a chapter break right here because this is such a different section now. Uh, but um, but e either way, uh, Luke 21, we move on to what some would call the Olivet Discourse. Why is it called that? Um, Olivet is, is just a, a reference to the Mount of Olives location and discourse is just, you know, the, the speech that Jesus gave about that. Um, uh, and so we're gonna kind of see how that goes. Let's take a look here in uh, verse five. And it says, as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, as for these things which you behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him saying, master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? Um, if you could sort of imagine all the people in Jerusalem excited, you know, around that time of year, they're all visiting Jerusalem and they're looking at the massive stones. We looked at those last week, if you're here Wednesday night and some other times we've talked about the giant stones of Solomon's era. And it's just kind of quite a study, just the stones. And we talked about the stone last week. 
But, um, but they're all marveling at the, you know, when it says goodly stones, you know, uh, uh, Josephus actually writes, uh, and we haven't found this particular stone, but Josephus writes, uh, one stone was 48 feet long, 18 feet tall, and eight feet wide. That's a pretty large brick. Um, uh, and uh, they're marveling, wow, look at these stones. Um, and Jesus, uh, you might say, is Jesus kind of being a Debbie Downer here? You know, buzzkill. They're all, oh, wow, look at this. Yeah, you like these stones? Not one of them is going to stay on top of another. They're going to be torn apart. Now, this, this is why they kind of freak out in, in verse 7. Uh, when are these things going to happen? What is the sign that will come to pass when these things will be? Uh, they're kind of worried about what he just said. That's, that's to, to move those stones. Well, if you know the story, 40 years later, this happened, what Jesus prophesied. He was talking about when the Romans would come and besiege the city, 140 days surrounding the city of Jerusalem, starving out the people in Jerusalem, um, and ultimately crushing Jerusalem. The story is told how the, 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 the temple would be torn apart, you know, stone by stone. Uh, one of the, you know, soldiers of Titus Longimaeus, the Roman general that crushed Jerusalem in AD 70. They, uh, one of the soldiers indiscriminately fired a flaming arrow over the Eastern wall um, into the doors of the temple. Now, when I say doors, they're 14 stories high, these two doors that open into the temple of Herod the Great, you know, the rebuilding of Zerubbabel's temple, kind of a remodel as uh, a glorious thing. That's why they're all marveling at how beautiful it is. Uh, well, some dude shoots this arrow through and all the tapestries and stuff on the inside of the temple caught on fire and it became a furnace and it melted all the gold that was in the temple, the gold vessels and, you know, the gold instruments, they were all melted in there. Um, and so a bunch of gold went down into the cracks of the rock. So, uh, you know, Titus ordered his soldiers to turn over every stone of the temple and get all the gold out from where those stones uh, were. And they took the stones and literally threw them over the Western wall. And I showed you that pile of rocks uh, last week uh, in that picture. So if you remember that, but all that to say, Jesus was just saying, here's what's gonna happen. Uh, Jerusalem's gonna be crushed. Now there's, there's all kinds of prophecy in the Old Testament about this moment. It would be one of the most important moments of Israel's history. Um, it's called the diaspora. It'd be AD 70 where the Jews would be dispersed all over the world. No longer would Israel be their homeland. Jerusalem would be emptied of Jews for the most part, um, and they'd be scattered. And they would scatter all over the Middle East, ultimately making it to uh, Europe and even New York City. Uh, and for 2,000 years almost, the Jews were scattered. Now, this is important because we'll see this as Jesus continues to talk about this. One of the things Luke 21 seems to emphasize over Matthew 24's account of this is the AD 70 part of this. Now this adds a little bit to confusion because there's different views on how Bible prophecy is gonna go. Some people believe all of it discords about, the whole thing's about only AD 70 where the Romans crushed Jerusalem. There's a bunch of people who'd say, yeah, that was all, all the stuff in Matthew 24, Luke 21, all of this stuff has already taken place. There's nothing future here. The problem is, if you read Matthew 24, you'll realize it goes much deeper. It's almost as if Jesus, when he's talking, his gaze goes beyond AD 70 and he starts talking about the end of the world, celestial bodies falling from the sky, the sun being darkened. Um, it, it gets more of a global and more of an end times, even to the point when Jesus comes again, his second coming. Luke 21 does that, not as much though as uh, Matthew 24. So. So you'll hear people, uh, pastors teach Luke 21, Matthew 24 and 25. It's all about AD 70, check the boxes, it's already happened. But I believe an honest read of Matthew 24 and 25 
you can't help but see, we're talking about the end of the world. The disciples even asked in Matthew 24, well, tell us of the signs of the coming of the end of the age. The end of the world is when, when the, they were talking about. Well, all that to say, um, now uh, what's, what's interesting about that is, um, you know, they, they're kind of, this sort of freaks them out. So Jesus, I think is gonna speak more on this because they're all wondering what, what are the signs? Uh, well, verse eight, uh, he goes on, he says, and he said, take heed that you be not deceived. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. And the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, famines, pestilence, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. So with all that said, we've got, you know, um, Jesus, uh, you know, talking about stuff that's very familiar. If you've been with us when we were in Matthew 24, you're like, wars, rumors of war, earthquakes, pestilence, all this stuff is, you know, what Jesus talked about there, kind of a repeat of that. But again, this, all these things happened here also in AD 70. One of the biggest earthquakes in the Middle East happened right around this time when Jesus is talking about. Um, archaeologically, there, there's a bunch of big Decapolis cities that were toppled right around AD 70. Uh, Bet Shean, maybe some of you have been to Bet Shean and seen the archaeological dig there. Also, Jarish in, um, in the country of Jordan. I've taken Ethan Creekers uh, to Jarish which was toppled because of great earthquakes. 10.0 on the Richter scale, they believe. Archaeological digs have shown uh, it, was, it was a huge earthquake. So even these, they were things that happened in AD 70. The question here is, are we also talking about the, uh, kind of a dual fulfillment of prophecy? Uh, by the way, example of a dual fulfillment prophecy like Cinnabon, like I told you about the prophecy update. Uh, see, I bring it all around here at Athey Creek. Um, but uh, there's like, here's a great example. In the book of Daniel, remember Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy that's, you know, uh, defiled the temple in, in, in 170 BC. Um, that's a, a, a fulfillment of prophecy from Daniel, but it also goes to the future of where the Antichrist will defile the temple in the tribulation period. And that's like an example of a dual, uh, it's like concentric circles or ripple effect of prophecy that the Bible talks about. Um, I believe that's what's happening here. AD 70 is like the big one that happened, you know, 40 years after Jesus was here, but also you're gonna see how it's gonna start to go out to another ring of the end times and the second coming of Christ. So kind of stay tuned that, for that. Um, one thing before we keep moving here, um, notice this is important for you to see, I think, um, in verse eight, where he says, many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. Did you notice the word Christ there is in italics? Uh, question, when you see something in italics in your Bible, why is it in italics, anybody? They added the word later. The, the translators are admitting, hey, we added this word. Now you say, that's horrible. It, it's not, I'll tell you why, because translation's a hard work. I mean, to translate from one language to another, sometimes there's words that don't translate. There's no, there's no you know, equal word or, so sometimes they'll add words to try to help the text. And a lot of times it's helpful uh, in the translation. This might be one that was um, maybe an, an oversight, and I'll tell you why. Um, if, if you don't have Christ here, um, Jesus would be saying this, and this would have been familiar to them in those days when, when he says, some will come in my name saying, I am. Um, does the, the, the sort of the I am ring a bell? 
Um, it goes back to the book of Exodus when Moses went to the burning bush. Remember Charlton Heston walking up and, uh, you know, and I'm standing on holy ground and he has to say bondage five times, bondage. Anyway, uh, Charlton Heston's there. Well, the, the bush says, I, uh, you know, who should, who should I say Moses had sent me? And the bush, which is God, says, I am that I am. And, uh, and, and I can almost hear Moses in his mind, you are what? Like, like, like what? what? What are you talking about? Well, that's the point. Um, I am, they call it the great tetragrammaton, tetra. It, it's, it's actually four letters, Y-H-W-H. And nobody really knows how to pronounce it. I know some people claim they do, and if they do, they don't. Um, Yahweh, Jehovah, we don't know for sure how they pronounced it. Um, but, um, and they left the vowels out because it was such a holy word, the, the name of God, the I am. But if you kind of realize what's going on, God says to Moses, I am. And if you would, you could say, I am everything you need. I am all sufficient. I am all holy, lacking for nothing. And then the rest of the Bible fills in the blank. God would even say in the Old Testament, I am Jehovah Sidkenu, your righteousness. Jehovah being attempt at the, at the four letters. I am Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. I am Jehovah Rapa, the God that heals our bodies. I am Jehovah, um, you know, Jireh, the God who provides all of our needs. Like the, the blank is filled in throughout all the scriptures. And you know what? Jesus even uh, fills it in as it goes uh, further and further. You know, Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the way, the truth of life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. You know, I am the, uh, the living water. I am the vine. You are the branches. Like Jesus fills in the I am. So here's the thing you need to understand. When Jesus says this, it really could just mean what, it, what he says here without the Christ in there um, saying, there's many that are going to come and say, I am. Being in place of either fill in the blank, either God, Jehovah, or in place of Christ himself, who is God in the flesh. I think you need to see that because not only in Jesus's day they were doing that, but in our day, it's even exponentially more. Um, well, Brett, who claims to be God uh, today? Oh, are you kidding? We could talk for hours about that. Um, you know, all the new agers, remember when Shirley McLean started the whole thing, running down the beach, I am God, I am God. I'm like, you are not. You're Shirley McLean, weirdo. Um, you see, like, like people that, there's a God complex. You can find it in places um, uh, that people, you know, New Age does that. In Portland, there's all these, you know, ladies who go around, I'm a goddess. And like, nope, you're not. Um, there's only one God and the Bible uh, is clear on that one. Um, one of the things that uh, separates, by the way, Mormonism from Christianity, I get in trouble for talking about Mormons sometimes. We have Mormons who watch, and I'm glad you're watching. If you're a Mormon, I'm glad you're here with us um, going through the Bible, because that's kind of the important thing to do. But um, sometimes I'll get a, a nice letter from Mormon. Brett, you don't understand Mormonism. I'll just tell you, be careful. I've studied the doctrines and covenants, read the Book of Mormon several times. I'm very pretty familiar with Mormonism. Um, let me read to you one of the writings. This might shock people. Um, and I, I know when I share stuff like this with Mormons, they're like, that's not what we believe. Check your own doctrines and covenants. Uh, uh, because like, for example, this is Mormon doctrine right here, written out of their words. Mormons, uh, they claim, after the resurrection, you know, when you die and resurrect, many will meet the requirements to achieve exaltation or the highest level of salvation in the celestial kingdom, wherein they will eternally live in God's presence. Continue as families, become gods, create worlds, have a, uh, spirit children over which they will govern. Um, you know, in Mormonism, there's levels of heaven, celestial, terrestrial, 
terrestrial, telestial, celestial. And the celestial level is kind of where you achieve godness. You know, you're like God. And that's why some people have called Mormonism the God makers, because um, that's kind of what they believe, whether you know it or not. Um, so I could just go on. There's so many groups and people that want to push that envelope and say, we are gods, awakening the gods within us. Um, uh, there was a local pastor, it used to be solid, uh, who a few years ago taught uh, that monotheism is an invention of Western um, thought and Western culture. Uh, only 300 years, the, uh, you know, um, and he was making a whole argument that there are many gods. Um, watch out for that kind of teaching. We gotta really be careful. Um, the Bible says there's only one God, there's no one even close to him or like him. Nothing's even close. Um, but in the last days, I believe that's something to watch for, uh, according to the, the Bible on this one. Well, as we go on now, um, verse 12, he goes on and says, um, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you. In other words, before all that other stuff, the earthquakes, pestilence, signs and wonders from heaven, before that, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues, into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what, uh, what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Um, did this happen with the disciples? He's talking like, like it's amazing because we saw even last week, remember when I read last week, Acts chapter four, where Peter, James, and John, they healed the impotent man and then the Sanhedrin, then the ruler said, you guys come and stand before us. Remember that? And, and, and uh, you know, Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. He didn't have to think about what he was gonna say, just like Jesus said here. He was filled with the Holy Ghost and he just spoke a word of power. And boom, those guys were like, you know, they marveled that they were unlearned and ignorant men, but they took knowledge that they'd been with Jesus and they couldn't say anything against it because the impotent man was healed standing before them whole. Remember that last week? Um, this is what Jesus said. Only 40 years later would these verses come to pass after Jesus said it. Um, but again, I would say the ripple effect, not only was that true for the disciples, but I believe this is something you and I might have to be aware of in the last days as we get closer to the end. Um, will people make us stand before leaders and rulers and uh, turn us in and stuff like that? And, uh, you know, and, and, and then do we worry about what we're gonna say? I believe we can rest, even as Jesus says, you know, don't meditate before what you're gonna say. I will give you a mouth and wisdom and uh, your adversaries won't be able to uh, speak against or, uh, or resist. Um, that, that's something to think about. Speaking of persecution, uh, look at verse 16. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you um, shall they cause to be put to death. Um, and that happened, of course, in those days, but also I believe this is something that could happen today. You know, I, I, I truly had a hard time picturing how are friends and family members gonna betray each other? That, that's hard to even imagine, you know. Um, but you know, when I first saw a glimpse of that, remember during the coronavirus when they said, if somebody has Thanksgiving dinner, you turn them in, call the police. If, if your next door neighbors are having turkey and Thanksgiving dinner. And I remember thinking, and, and if you know the story, there were people that were turning in family members and friends uh, who had turkey dinner. And I was like, wow, people are kind of wacko and they will do that, uh, which is kind of interesting. I wonder if we are closer to those times perhaps uh, than we even think. Um, you know, that wasn't that big a deal. 
Um, but was that just a sort of a test balloon to see, you know, who would turn their family in, who was, was not in compliance with, uh, you know, going uh, against the law, the rule or whatever? I think that's kind of the, the spirit that Jesus is talking about that's going to be in the last days as well. And verse 17, um, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Um, would you note that one of the things I think the church, we make a mistake trying to be loved by the world. Now, I'm not saying to be purposefully, you know, weird as Christians and try to make the world hate us. That's not the idea at all. But don't be surprised if you're a Jesus follower and if you believe the Bible, don't be surprised if the world's going to hate you. I think we're going to see more and more of that as we get closer to the end as well. Verse 18, but there shall not a hair of your head perish in your patience possess ye your souls. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is near. Verse 21, then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains and let them which are in the midst of it depart out and let them not, uh, let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the, uh, the land, and wrath upon this people. Um, this is a heavy section, and, and uh, if you know your history, this is what happened in AD 70. Um, you know, don't even... Uh, don't even let others from surrounding, you know, countries come in. But, you know, he's saying, everybody run. Uh, like I said, the Romans besieged Jerusalem. That means surrounded Jerusalem for 140 days. Um, uh, there's horrible stories about starvation and stuff like that. Um, interesting sideline story about this part. Um, Jesus gave this prophecy. 40 years later, there, the church had already grown a lot in Jerusalem. And the, uh, Eusebius is an early church father. You should know about Eusebius. He wrote in, in book five, pardon me, book three, chapter five, he wrote about um, some of this account of Christians in Jerusalem. They were reading Luke 21 and realizing, man, this is gonna be really bad. So knowing Luke 21, um, they prayed and they got in a group of Christians when the Romans were besieging Jerusalem. And Eusebius, this first century guy, um, wrote about how they felt the Lord telling them by the Holy Spirit to march as a bunch of Christians out of Jerusalem and go to the East Gate. And, and um, so they did. Uh, now you gotta understand, this would be like certain death for them to go out the East Gate. But the story is told by Eusebius that the Christians after praying, directed by the Lord to go to the East Gate, they went to the East Gate, went out of the East Gate, and lo and behold, there wasn't a Roman soldier to be seen anywhere. And, they, and, and Eusebius writes that thousands of Christians flooded out of Jerusalem through the East Gate and, and flee to, would flee to the wilderness to safety. It's kind of a cool story. It's not in the Bible, but because of Luke 21, 40 years later after this, Eusebius writes about how many escaped this disastrous um, AD 70. Now, the Jews would be scattered, the diaspora. In fact, verse 24 is a power-packed verse. Um, in Matthew, uh, Matthew 24, uh, Luke 21, 24, I should say, the verse, the one single verse, Matthew takes like 10 verses to explain this single verse in Luke 21. So check this out. It's Luke, Luke 21, 24 says, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. 
This is one of the amazing prophecies of the Bible. Can I just say, if you're an atheist and you think the Bible is full of contradictions because you, you know, your professors taught you that or you read it on some you know, blog or watched a YouTube video or something, um, can I just challenge you? There's so many, Bible's full of contradictions. And you know, it's so funny because they're all so easily answered and there's not, it really is not any contradictions in the Bible. But, um, but can I just say, if you wanna look at something, uh, look at the Jewish, um, you know, history and what the Bible says in prophecy about the Jews. This is one of the most amazing things. In fact, there was a great scholar and biblical theologian back in several generations ago, Count von Zinzendorf. Um, and they asked him, you know, Mr. Zinzendorf, you know, how can you prove to us that God exists? Um, and he said this, and I thought it was interesting. He said, two words, the Jews. Well, what does that have to do with proving God exists? Well, he's totally right about this. There's so much in the Bible about God's plan for the Jewish people. It's amazing to me how, how ignorant so many we can be about God's plan for the Jewish people. Um, you know, God told the Jews over and over and over, De Deuteronomy and Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, uh, all the prophets, you know, talked about, if you keep my statutes, commandments, and judgments, I'll bless you and I'll protect you, I'll be with you. But if you turn against me and rebel against me and worship idols and follow after the gods of other kingdoms, then I'm gonna lift my protection and ultimately I will scatter you among the nations and you will, you will be you know, um, in trouble, scattered all over the world. Like this, this is so, spoken of you know, many times in the Bible. Well, the Jews rebelled, uh, didn't keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments. And so AD 70, what Jesus is predicting is the culmination of them and their rebellion. And God scatters the Jews. Brett, that's easy to say uh, that the, you know, a kingdom is destroyed and that was God's plan. Oh, I'm not done yet. God says this as well over and over again. But after I scatter you, he says, in the last days, I will regather you, the Jews, my people, into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will make of you again a mighty nation. And all the nations of the world will hate you, but I will bless you and protect you. Like, and it says that over and over, and there's all kinds of illustrations and like over and over in the Bible. Now, what happened? Something that's never happened in the history of the world. Any kingdom or people group that was destroyed or scattered by an enemy nation, after you know, one generation, like even a hundred years, those nations were always assimilated back into the other cultures and they were lost forever. Uh, that group would be what we would maybe call extinct. There's many people groups that were crushed and became no more. The Jews are the only ones where they were scattered completely all over the world out of their own homeland, given to them by God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given the land of Israel, and then they were scattered, and people took over that land. Um, but for almost 2,000 years, they were scattered. And then around the 1700s, the Zionist movement, the world hates the Zionist movement, by the way, those Zionists, they say, and there's people marching in New York City and Portland today about the Zionist movement. Um, but what the Zionist movement was is Jews um, saying, we need to get back to our old land of our nativity, you know, uh, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Theodore Herzl, and the other, you know, those Ben Yehuda, other guys said, we're gonna go back to Israel and we're gonna restore our people and our land. So a lot of those Zionists from Theodore Herzl days, they went and bought a bunch of land from the Bedouins 
and started migrating into what they called Palestine. By the way, Palestine was named that once the Jews were scattered by the Romans, it was Emperor Hadrian of Rome that renamed Israel to Palestina to spite the Jews. That's where the name came from. It's not that there were Palestinians there. Um, the Philistines, speaking of extinct groups, by the Roman Empire, the Philistines were extinct. They didn't exist, but they were enemies of Israel. So Hadrian said, we're gonna name Israel Palestina after the Philistines, just to spite them. Um, so it stayed Palestine right up until you know, Zionist movement, Jews started moving back into Israel. And then um, after the Holocaust of World War II, the world feeling guilty because we didn't do much to help Jews. Uh, we came in really late on the whole thing. Um, well, the League of Nations, eventually the United Nations um, voted to give Israel back the land which was their forefathers. And by a, a, a vote, the president of the United States was the final vote that gave, said, we're giving this land back to Israel. Isn't it funny that the world is contesting? So not only did God give the land to Israel, not only did the Jews purchase from the Bedouins a lot of the land from the Bedouins, but also the, the world after the Holocaust said, yeah, we're gonna, May, May 1948, they became a nation and we signed off on that. The world did. Isn't it interesting that they're under so much scrutiny and you know, when the, when the you know, people on the streets yell, from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free. They're basically saying, get all the Jews out again. And it's, it belongs to Palestinian people. Um, this, is, this, this is all stuff the Lord pr predicted in his word. And now you got the Jews back in Israel and it's called Israel once again. And all the nations of the world hate Israel, but they're one of the most powerful nations in the world. One of the greatest economies in the world, one of the greatest militaries in the world. All of this was foretold with great precision in the Bible. If you are tempted to say the Bible's just a made up book of literature or whatever, I would say you've not done a careful reading. The Jews are one of the, the single most powerful, um, you know, uh, confirmations of God's word that anybody could ever come up with. Um, now, now, let's get back to our verse 24. Again, chocked full of stuff. Jerusalem shall be trodden of the, down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled. Question for you Bible prophecy folks. Um, what, is the, what is another name of the time of the Gentiles? The church age. See, the Jews, when they were scattered, that's when the church began. Jesus resurrected and the church began and the Gentiles saved. And we're in that age, the Gentile age. What's gonna be the end of the Gentile, the age of the Gentiles? The rapture of the church. When the church is taken up and out, then, then suddenly <clears throat> that's the end of the age of the Gentiles. But what's gonna kick into gear? Well, this is where we have to remember what God says. If you wanna know about Jews and Gentiles and God's plan for both, read Romans 9, 10, and 11 three chapters that perfectly uh, describe what God's plan is for Jews, um, short-term, long-term, and also for the Gentile church. But this really sums it up here in Romans 11, 25 and 26. Uh, he says, I would not brethren that you, he's speaking of Gentiles, the Romans, that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits. In other words, I don't want, I'm writing this so you're not ignorant and you're not arrogant, sadly. The Gentile church is largely ignorant and arrogant about the Jews today. Um, but the Lord says, I don't want you ignorant or arrogant. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. 
See, as somebody who you say, Brett, you're a supporter of Israel, people interpret that to mean, I believe everything Israel does is wonderful and perfect and they don't make any mistakes. Did I ever say that? No, Israel's ungodly right now. Um, they're not even believers for the most part. There's the Hasidics that are, they have kind of a weird view of you know, Hebrew Old Testament. Um, and if you know the Hasidic behavior, it's uh, like almost nobody likes them because it's not a great thing. Most of Israel is still in an ungodly place right now. If you know your Ezekiel 36 prophecy, remember the Lord says, I'm gonna gather my people at the end of the world and it's gonna be like a valley of dry bones. And remember clinkety clink, the bones are gonna come together. And then there's gonna be skin to start come on the bones, but there's still no life in them. Um, that's the stage we're in right now where God has gathered his people, Ezekiel 36, and he's put skin on them, but there's no spiritual life in them yet. When is the life gonna be breathed into the Jews and they're gonna be saved and, and come back to life? The fullness of the Gentiles. When, when the church age is over, the rapture of the church happens and then God turns his focus once again to the Jewish people because he has a plan for them. And I love what it says here. He's gonna turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. And the next verse says, and all of Israel shall be saved. That's gonna be a glorious, a glorious time. That's what Jesus is referring to back to our text in Luke 21, verse 24, when he says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Question, if Jesus said that Gentiles are gonna trodden down Jerusalem till the rapture of the church, if that's what you're saying, Brett, then why do the Jews have Jerusalem to this day? The Jews have Jerusalem today. I'll give you a good answer. Are you ready for this? When the Bible talks about Jerusalem, the specific epicenter of Jerusalem in the Bible is the Temple Mount. That is Zion. That is what Jerusalem is, the Temple Mount. And question, who controls the Temple Mount to this day? Gentiles, a bunch of Muslims, the, the you know, the, um, the Jordanian, you know, and all these guys, they, they actually control the Temple Mount. It's a shocker, uh, by the way, because uh, there were times where the Jews could have really taken over. They did. Uh, when I was one year old, and maybe you remember when Moshe Dayan stormed into Jerusalem, you know, there, um, and they took the other half of Jerusalem. You might have even seen pictures with Moshe Dayan, the guy with the patch, remember him? And he was marching in and they took over the Temple Mount and the Jews were weeping and celebrating, we've got the Temple Mount. And do you know what the first thing Moshe Dayan did? He gave the Temple Mount back to the Muslims. Why? Um, it was this harebrained idea of land for peace. Has that ever worked with the Muslims? Hey, we'll give you some more land and then we'll have peace, right? Uh, well, that's never worked. Uh, one of the biggest ones, land for peace swap, not only Gaza Strip was a, a land for peace swap, that didn't work out so well either. Um, but the Temple Mount, after the Jews took it, they gave their first most holy site, the Jews. The Temple Mount is the first most holy site to Jews. It's only the third most holy site to Muslims. And it was Yasser Arafat's great uncle, the Grand Mufti, who declared that the third most holy site only a generation ago. It's really a funny thing that they would give their holiest site to the Muslims and they control that. When we go to Israel, if we wanna to go to the Temple Mount, we have to have permission of the Muslims to go up there and we can't carry our Bibles, you can't pray. They don't let you talk about the Bible. Um, there's no religious liberty in the Muslim world. Um, so it's, you kind of have to just walk around and be silent on the Temple Mount and get yelled at by Muslims. That's happened to us as well. So it's kind of a funny thing that people don't understand the whole thing that's gone on. But 
I find it interesting. I was in a little shop in Jerusalem. This little old guy was there and he's selling little artifacts from Jerusalem. And, and I started talking to him. I talked to him for actually a couple of hours. And I was saying, you know, what do you, what do you think? Why do you think, you know, uh, um, Moshe Dayan gave the Temple Mount? Why? Because people don't know, you know. I said, why do you think he gave the um, Temple Mount back to the Muslims? And his face turned almost like purple and veins started popping out of his neck. And he said, and this, I'm not kidding, it kind of shocked me. He pulled his pant leg up and, and he showed me this huge scar on his calf muscle. He said, I didn't get this scar. I was one of the soldiers that stormed the Temple Mount that day in 67. And he said, and we fought for that, not to have Moshe Dayan just give it back to the Muslims. And he was like, blah, 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 blah. And he started talking in Hebrew and I don't know what he was saying, but I don't think it was very nice. <laughs> and um, even the Jews, can't really argue why Moshe Dayan gave it. I'll tell you why Moshe Dayan gave that back to the Muslims, because the Bible, God said it would be trodden down under the Gentiles until the rapture of the church. That was just fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Again, the Bible just points to God's knowing the, you know, knowing the future. He knows all the things that are gonna happen. Well, um, we need to keep moving here as the hour gets later. So uh, verse 24, you can talk about a lot. Well, uh, verse 25 goes on. And it says, men's hearts, uh, oh, pardon me, verse 25. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Now, now, this is where an honest reader, are we still talking about Jerusalem at this time? See, the, the, the you know, preterist or the amillennialist who says this is all either figurative or this all has already been fulfilled in AD 70. This is where I start to say, man, what, what is verse 25 about then? Where is the sea and the waves around Jerusalem? There's no sea and waves around Jerusalem. And when did the celestial bodies uh, start being affected, the moon and the stars? This is more of the future. This is where Jesus's gaze is going beyond AD 70. And now he's talking about the end of time. And I'll show you, I'll prove it to you. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. Um, so uh, I love the word perplexity. If you look up the word perplexity there, that's in the King James here, um, it's a word that means this, no apparent political solution. Does that ring a bell? Uh, do you feel like a lot of the, the things in the world, whether it's the United States or the Russian-Ukrainian situation or the Arab-Israeli conflict, I mean, we could just go on and on. You know, the Houthis down in the Red Sea. Uh, there seems to be no political solution. Um, what's the solution? Jesus coming back. The second coming of Christ, and we'll see that. Look at verse 26. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Um, man, celestial cataclysmic events is the idea here. Verse 27, and then shall they see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Does anybody know what that event is called? Verse 27. Yeah, the second coming of Christ. Did that happen in AD 70? No, the reason I'm, you know, it might sound elementary, but there are people that say, no, this whole chapter is about AD 70. And it was more of a spiritual coming of the Christ. And, and it was a, like a spiritual, solical kind of thing. Nope, Christ is coming and he's gonna rule and reign. The Bible talks a lot about that. You gotta read your whole Bible. By the way, um, you know, um, 
I'm not afraid to say, I, you know, I'm a pre-trib, pre-millennial. I believe in the rapture of the church before the tribulation. And I, I have good Christian friends and we love to debate and have, di have different opinions. It should be a friendly in-house debate about the way end times are gonna unfold. It's getting meaner and meaner and that's unfortunate. Some people are getting more hostile. But, um, but one thing I just wanna point out in, in, in you know, maybe the pre-trib, uh, point of view that, I, that, that you should note as a, a church member or congregation of, of a church or other churches. Um, you wanna know who uh, is almost uh, unilateral or like unanimously, I should say, uh, uh, pre-trib, the rapture of the church before the tribulation. The pastors that teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible, they're all pre-trib, pre-millennial rapture of the church people. And I'll tell you why because it's the only eschatological view of end times that you can teach the whole Bible cover to cover without being embarrassed a lot. What I mean is if you, if you, for example, teach that we're living in the kingdom and there's no such thing as a rapture of the church and, there, uh, and you teach that uh, all these things have already happened, you check all the boxes, um, it's embarrassing. You can maybe pull that off, especially if you're doing sermon series of your own choosing. You know, you can kind of tell people, this is, this is the way that's gonna happen. And, and you can convince people, as long as you're not going verse by verse. But when you go verse by verse, you're gonna be required to answer questions about what God's word says about the end of time. And, and as far as I can see it, uh, the only way to see from cover to cover, all the pieces come together, all the dots connect, is in the pre-trib, pre-millennial sort of view. I did a teaching, oh, only several months back about the four main views, if you remember that. If you're interested, I, I don't like talking about the four views because I don't believe them, all of them, but I did a few uh, months back if you're wondering what all the other views are about, about the way it's gonna unfold. But this is basically saying the second coming of Christ, verse 27 and verse 28, when these things begin to come to pass, then look, um, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. We like to claim verse 28 for us today, and, and I think it's okay to do that. We should be looking up, and we do believe our redemption is drawing nigh. But truthfully, this verse is talking to those that are right before the second coming of Christ. That's the, the Jews and the people who accept Christ after the rapture of the church during the tribulation. We call them tribulation saints, people who refuse to follow the Antichrist and choose to follow Jesus. It'll be those people who'll be in a horrible situation because the tribulation is not going to be fun. Um, and they're supposed to look up and, and trust that their redemption is, is coming soon. Verse 29, and he uh, spake to them a parable, behold the fig tree and all the trees, when they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Um, I love this section. We could get into the fig tree, but notice Luke tells us something in addition to the fig tree and all the trees. What's he talking about here? Well, again, this is a super high level view of this just for this morning, but um, when he brings in all the trees, the point is when you see trees start to blossom, you know. We as Portlanders maybe know this better than people in the Middle East because here we are in gray, rainy Portland, cold, rainy, gloomy. But when you see that first blossom on a tree, we Portlanders go, yes, evidence. There's evidence that the sun still exists. 
and we're so excited because summer's coming. Summer's in the Pacific Northwest, man, it's glorious. But sometimes it gets a little tough on these gray, rainy days, you know. Um, but when we see the blossoming of the trees, that's what the Lord's saying. He's saying, when you, you know, there's signs of the times. You don't know the day or the hour when the coming of the Lord is gonna be, but you will know the seasons and the times by the, and, and he uses this analogy of the blossoming of a tree, and that's how you'll know. And I, I think we're seeing those blossoms of end times. Uh, we're starting to see evidence that these things are about to come to pass. Well, verse 34, and take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day comes upon you unaware. Um, that word surfeiting is kind of funny when you look it up in the original text. Uh, surfeiting, um, it, it means um, basically hangover. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, um, you know, partying down, the Lord's saying, don't be partying down. Is kind of the idea there. Um, but the word surfeiting um, uh, is, uh, I was trying to find my definition of that, but um, you know, the surfeiting means, uh, you know, you've had a little too much wine and it's time to settle down. The point is, if you're living in your life uh, in the last days going, yeah, whatever, the Lord's gonna come back, whatever, I'm gonna party down and not be watching or waiting. The Lord says, that's not the way to go. He wants us to live our lives watching, waiting, being sober and being vigilant. Um, because, verse 35, for as a snare, it shall come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth. Um, now, keep in mind, I believe um, that these things that we're reading about here are largely gonna be happening in the tribulation period. We're not gonna be there. Um, we're, I think we're gonna be taken out before the tribulation. Now, my post-trib people, uh, friends, they'll say, Pastor Brett, you pre-tribbers, you guys are just trying to escape the horrible things of the tribulation. We, we need to build bunkers and have food and weapons because the tribulation period, like a lot of the post-tribbers kind of say, you guys are setting up yourself, your congregation to be unready for the tribulation. Let me, let me say a few things about that. First of all, um, I, I think that um, the idea of, uh, um, you know, that they say you guys are arrogant, that you're never gonna go through problems or anything like that. No, I believe we could go through horrible persecution before the rapture of the church. Um, it'd be arrogant for us to say we are you know, gonna be isolated. You know, the, the Holocaust, that was a horrible thing. Well, that could happen again to Christians before the rapture of the church. It's just that it's not gonna be as bad as the tribulation because Jesus said in Matthew 24, the seven years of tribulation is gonna be the worst time in the history of the world forevermore. So I don't wanna be a part of that. So then my you know, post-trib friend says, but Pastor Brett, you're just trying to escape. You're an escapist. And I always say, Exactly. That's totally who I am. You've nailed me down perfectly. I want to escape these things. Well, you shouldn't. Well, what did Jesus say? Check it out. Verse 36. Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that, uh, and that shall come to pass uh, and to stand before the Son of Man. Man, I believe uh, that's it. Call it escapism. Call it whatever you want. But I want to pray uh, that I be counted worthy to escape. Now, question. What do you have to do to be worthy? In fact, who is worthy to escape all these things? The answer is nobody. You say, well, then why should we pray? Because there is a prayer that will count to your worthiness. 
And it's really an important prayer. It's called the prayer of salvation, the sinner's prayer, some people call it. If you pray and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I deserve death and hell, but I, I repent of my sin and I confess that your son Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I accept that as a saving work that you did for me. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus that he died and rose from the grave, it says you will be saved. And the Bible says, I will impute my righteousness on you. So we are unworthy. We deserve death and hell and the tribulation and everything else. But the Lord says, you will be counted worthy, not because of your worthiness, but because of my worthiness. I start to wrap this up this morning with that truth. If you're not saved, you will be not worthy. But if you wanna be counted worthy, then, then accept Christ, become a Christian, repent of your sins and follow Jesus. It's such a glorious thing. It's not a hard thing to do. He did all the work for us, you know, the gospel message. Well, now this is where uh, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, if it is that of Luke 21, he kind of ends it, but this is part of the evidence. I'm not sure this is the same thing of, because in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 24 and in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples asked Jesus privately to explain the end of the world. We don't read that here. And it seems that he's talking on the Temple Mount in this particular account. And then notice how it wraps up two more verses and we're done, verse 37. And in, in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. And at night, he went out and abode in the Mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. Some scholars believe Jesus gave the Luke 21 message on the Temple Mount with Pharisees and Jews and people all around. He gave sort of this abbreviated version. <clears throat> and then they believe that they went that night to the Mount of Olives and the disciples says, Jesus, we, <clears throat> if you would, you know, Jesus, we don't really understand all that stuff <clears throat> that you talked about in Luke 21. So tell us about the end of the world and the signs of the times. And some people believe that Matthew 24 is Jesus expounding and expanding uh, what he was talking about from Luke 21. <clears throat> Uh-oh, my voice is going away. Pray for me now. Only two more services to go. Well, may the Lord give us ears to hear, hearts to watch and be ready and waiting for the second coming of Christ. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word, living and powerful. And for those who have been, for whatever reason, hesitant to accept and to believe the work of the cross, even these discussions about the end of the world and the authenticity of the Bible, may it just spark people's desire to come to know you. So bless these, your people, as we go our way, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.